was a number of years ago when my family and I still lived in Albany. Uh, we knew that we were going to be leaving our church, and one of the things that we decided to do was go see a number of places that we knew, hey, we may never be back in this region again. Uh, let's go ahead and find some things that we want to go visit. And one of the things that we wanted to visit was the Boston Aquarium. Have you ever been? Few people have been to the Boston Aquarium. We have heard, we had heard great things from our friends in Albany, from the people in our church. If, if you're ever in Boston, you've got to go and see the aquarium. All right, we're in. So we booked a hotel right down on the harbor, or I guess, you know, in local speak, the Haba. And we stayed overnight. I made arrangements to visit some friends that I knew online that I played video games with for a number of years in. You know, decade. I'd never met them before in person. I knew they lived locally, so we made arrangements uh, to connect with them and visit them. And then we got up excited the next day to go to the Boston Aquarium. And we got there, and it was one building. That was it. I don't know if I had an expectation that I shouldn't have had, but the way that my friends had, had pumped up and excited me about going to see the Boston Aquarium was, was I was expecting like a mini zoo. I wasn't expecting like a, just a, a, a column. It, and it was, it was a great aquarium, don't get me wrong. They, uh, the way that they have it set up is that it's essentially a circular building. Uh, that's a number of different levels. And in the middle of the building is the aquarium. And instead of different levels, you actually walk up ramps, and the whole time you're walking, you can see inside the aquarium. And it had all the sharks that we were told about, and all the turtles, and all the things that we were impressed with. Around the exterior, there were penguins who were doing rude things, and all the kids were laughing at what the penguins were doing, as, you know, they're animals, what do you expect? And yet, I couldn't help but think, we planned an overnight trip to go to something that takes two hours to see. Like, we walked out thinking, that was great. What do you want to do with the rest of the day? Have you ever had an, addict, have you ever had an experience like that? Where someone's told you, oh, this is amazing. You've got to go try this. And you've gone and tried it. And it just didn't live up to the hype. Maybe it was a, a restaurant. That someone said, oh, if you're in this area, you've got to try this restaurant and make sure you order this food. And so you eat it and you think, it's okay. I mean, it's not terrible. I'm glad they have an opinion. I just wish it was right. <laughs> or perhaps you've been told, you have to go see this movie, right? You've got to go see this movie. You've got to go see this film. It's the next installment in a trilogy or a series. And you, you go to see it and you walk out just going, is there a way I can get my two or three hours back? I wish I'd had a rented that, not, not paid, you know, $16, $15 for a ticket and then, you know, $8,000 for popcorn. <laughs> I wish I had done that. Or a TV series. There's been lots of TV series that people have been hyped up about and excited about and just thinking, oh, this is great. And as the series goes on, you think, what happened to the writing? There's a term in television called jumping the shark. Have you heard of that before? Jumping the shark is a term when a series has passed a point of no return and it's no longer good and it's no longer watchable. 
It comes from the TV show Happy Days, where the Fawns and his girlfriend, uh, Ponzarelli, something like that, I don't remember, but uh, he and his girlfriends were on, uh, on their motorcycles, and, and he literally jumped over a shark on his motorcycle. And so the term jumping the shark was when everyone said, yep, we're out, we're no longer watching Happy Days, and ratings plummeted after that moment. And from now on, jumping the shark isn't a descriptive thing, it's a verb <laughs> that describes what someone does when they've crossed the point of no return and it said, you know what, this just isn't worth the hype anymore and it's not worth my time. Sometimes we feel like that as Christians, that someone from a pulpit or someone who invites us to a Christian event is telling us, this is going to be great, you should come. We announced our upcoming series that's starting next week and it's going to be great you got to invite your friends and I hope this isn't the case but if you come next week you think okay there was a lot of sizzle but where's the steak this isn't just worth this isn't worth the hype we can do that as Christians and sometimes as Christians if we're sharing our faith sometimes people think but What's the, what's the stake? I see a lot of sizzle talking about Jesus, but what's, what's the excitement level? I just don't get that same level of excitement. It seems good, but we feel like it could be better. You know, we actually find examples of that in Scripture, and one of the examples that we have of that, of something that just ends like, hmm, I wonder if that could be better, is at the end of the Gospel of Mark. If you're just joining us for the first time or you're just tuning in on our uh, sermon series, catching this on podcast, uh, we have been working through the Gospel of Mark together for a number of months on and off since September 2020. And we are just coming to the end. And I want to show you something. We didn't put this on the screen, so you will need a Bible for this. I encourage you to take out your phone if you don't have it. But I want you to turn to Mark chapter 16 and look at something that happens between verses, chap- verses 8 and verses 9 of Mark chapter 16. I want to show you something that seems a little odd when you run across it in your scriptures. I don't know if you have this little footnote. But it says this, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. They're not there. And I don't know why the early manuscripts wouldn't have this because if you look at the text of 9 through 20, we're not going to read it. I leave it to you to read this afternoon. But there's an amazing story that someone seems to be adding later on because I think they felt like, man, the way that Mark ends his gospel, it seems a little weak. Most scholars believe that someone came along later and said, you know what, I think I can add a little bit to this to give it a boost, to give it more of a a positive send-off like the other gospels that we have. And so they took some of the stories of Acts that we find, some amazing stories of miracles, of of Paul getting bit by a snake and him surviving, and, and, and just kind of make those into promises. 
And then they talk about seeing Jesus ascend to the right hand of the throne of God. That's true. That's something that Paul wrote later. That's not how Mark ended. I don't think they're made up things. But they're added. And the reason why they were added was because of the way the actual text ends in verse 8. Let me show you how the text ends. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. That's the end of the gospel. Does that surprise you just a little bit? This is not the Easter story that you hear about the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? If you grew up in church, if you've uh, ever gone to an Easter service, you know that the stories that you hear are the stories from Matthew. The Matthew 28. We want Luke 24, where Jesus comes and he shows up at the road to Emmaus. And there's two gentlemen walking along, and they don't recognize him. And Jesus says, you guys are morons. That's a little bit of a paraphrase. How come you guys don't understand? And he showed them who he was as he broke bread with them. He explained from the scriptures what the Messiah would do. And then he disappears from their sight. And they go, he's really back. And they run back to tell his disciples. And his disciples are like, come on, you're making it up. And as they're sharing this story, Jesus appears among them and says, Peace be with you. He invites Thomas, the one who doubted that he is really back, and says, look, see the holes in my hands. Place your hands in them. Put your hand in my side. It is really me. I am really back. And Thomas describes my Lord and my God. And then they all show up on the mountain that Jesus said to go to. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go then and make disciples. Baptize them and I will be with you. And he just, whoop into the clouds and he's gone. That's the Easter story we want. I don't know what Mark 16, 8 is doing as an ending. Feels like we're missing something, doesn't it? It's either something's missing or we're missing something. And I think the something that we're missing is so life-changing and so powerful that once Mark's readers heard this, they would never be the same. Can I show you what I think is going on? Please say yes. Thank you. Yes. Whew. little concerned. Let me show you what's going on. We actually have to go back a few verses all the way to Mark chapter 1. Because after Mark chapter 1 begins, John the Baptist is giving his ministry of repent and be baptized. Jesus shows up on the scene with this message in verse 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now let me ask you, what is the kingdom of God? What is Jesus talking about? 
Any ideas? Anyone online? Do you have an idea? What is Jesus talking about? Maybe, Josiah, you could uh, call up our chat window and just see if anyone gives us some help. But in person, uh, what do you think? What is the kingdom of God that has come near? What is Jesus talking about? What do you think? It's tough, isn't it? Because we don't really look for the kingdom of God. Anyone online share anything, Josiah? It's a tough answer. What is it? Himself. Himself. Maybe. But I don't think it's more than that. Because if Jesus was saying, I have come, he'd have to explain what that meant. He says the kingdom of God has come and gives no explanation, which means they were looking for it. So what does it mean to Jesus' original audience, first century Jews, that the kingdom of God has come? This is the fulfillment of an age-old promise to the patriarchs and David and more that through the nation of Israel, through the people of God that he chose, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed and that all people would come to see that they are God's chosen people and that they would come to have a relationship with God by worshiping God in the temple. That's what they believed. They would rise up to prominence and significance again as a, not just a political force, but the nation to be a part of because they were the people of God. And Jesus comes and declares that that kingdom is near. That kingdom is has come. The nations of the world would be blessed because he was here. And it has not come yet. It's close. It's near. So this is amazing news. And that's the beginning of the book of Mark. And then the rest of the book describes that you just can't miss what Jesus is doing. You can't dismiss it out of hand. You can't say, well, anyone can do that, or he's kind of an outlier. No, he is doing something amazing and significant. The, significant. the very first thing that happens to Jesus after he declares this is he's attacked by Satan himself. The religious rulers come after him, and he succeeds in defending his faith, in defending his relationship with God. And he starts talking about this kingdom. He says it's near, and it's so small you can't see it. It's like a mustard seed. But just you wait, because it will soon take over the whole garden. It will become the largest of all garden plants. And Jesus backed up that claim, proving undeniably that he was the one who would establish this kingdom. He was the one who would plant this seed. He was the one who was going to cause it to grow, to take over the whole garden and take over the whole earth. He was the one who was going to do it. He had the power. He had the authority. He calmed the storm. He freed and healed the demoniac. He encouraged his disciples when they were overwhelmed by the challenges of ministry. He taught them about the distinctives of the kingdom. He explained what the requirements of serving in his kingdom would be. And he explained what their ministry priorities have to be in the kingdom. And Peter, when all of this evidence was added up in Mark chapter 8... He says, when Jesus asks him, but who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are clearly the one. There is no one else. You are the one who is going to bring this mission to fruition. 
It was all Jesus. And they all betrayed him. Why? Because he died. He was crucified by those who wanted him dead. How do we know that? There were eyewitnesses. Check out verse 40 of chapter 15. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Kind of interesting, is it, isn't it, that the men all ran? But the women stayed. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Mary Magdalene saw. Do you remember Mary Magdalene? Do you know her story a little bit? Mary was delivered and healed from seven demons because Jesus cast them out. There's no one like Jesus to Mary Magdalene. And Mary, the mother of James, Joseph, and Salome, her boys had followed Jesus as his disciples. Some were in his inner circle, some were not, but they all followed they witnessed him being sealed in a tomb cut out of solid stone. He was dead and he was buried. And if he is dead and he is buried, then the mission is dead. And the mission is over. That's why the disciples ran. If he's not the Messiah, then the kingdom of God is not near. And there's no point in being around him. In other words, they believed that the kingdom of God wasn't near. It had been. Maybe he was good, but he wasn't good enough. It was over and they were gone. How do you feel? How would you feel if the person that you trusted to win lost 
If you're a sports fan, you know what that's like. Because your team doesn't win all the time. Even if they're the superstar, sometimes they lose. Michael Jordan didn't win every championship. Wayne Gretzky didn't win every Stanley Cup. Josh Allen, hopefully, gets another chance. So close, but not close enough. That's why they lost. It's not just sports, though, right? We live in Rochester. We know what it's like when businesses fail. Large, multinational examples of success. We know what happens. We know what we feel like when we pour our life out to a company and it goes bankrupt. We lose our job. We lose our investments. We know what it's like when we trust an investor to do something with our money, something with our resources so that we have a nest egg when we can no longer work and it is gone and it is their fault because they took a risk, they took a gamble, and it didn't pay off. Some of you know what it's like when a relationship doesn't work out. Some of you know what it's like after pouring your faith into your kids who when they become adults decide, I'm going to walk away. You know that pain of feeling like you've spent so much time, so much energy. You wonder if the mission can continue because the master's gone. What will you do next? I think that's what the disciples felt. The one who did every miracle, every teaching, was gone, confirmed, dead, and buried. But that's just chapter 15. And chapter 16 is coming. And we read this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter 
He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Do you know what this means? Do you know what that declaration means? Do you know what that command means? Jesus' resurrection not only proves that he is alive and well, but that the mission is alive and well. That he's not done, the mission's not done. Jesus, we learned last week that his death paid for the sins of all humanity. The temple veil torn in two. That fellowship with God is available for anyone regardless of their geographical location. They no longer have to travel to a place to know God personally, to be in his presence. They can be with him every hour of every day. They can know his presence, know his leading, and know his guidance. You can have a relationship with the God that created you. That's what his death accomplished. But his resurrection, his resurrection shows us and proves to us that that's a story worth sharing. He will keep his promise to bring the kingdom of God. He's not done with his mission. So what does it look like that the kingdom of God is near now that the resurrection has happened? Well, all the way back in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus said that truly I tell you, some of you will, standing here will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. When was the kingdom of God, when did the kingdom of God come with power? The birth of the church. When the church came, all of a sudden, as they were praying, they started to speak in all sorts of different languages. The Holy Spirit arrived on all of them. It was a new era. No longer did they have to go to a place to talk to God. God, the indwelling Savior, gave us His Spirit, His Holy Spirit, so that we could hear His voice in the very depths of our soul. All of the barriers of physical communication, of Jesus uh, being with them in person, it's now better because the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God, resides in each and every believer. That is the promise of the church. And in the church, God establishes a colony, a physical establishment of his people that has spread all around the world where his transformed brothers, sons and daughters live under his reign and rule. And there will come a day when Jesus himself comes back, Satan is ultimately defeated and we behold his glory and live forever in his presence. And Jesus says, well, this, the young man in the white robe says, so get to it. Go to Galilee, because it's time to get back to work. And who did he tell? Did you notice that? Who did, who did the young man say that the women were go to tell to go to Galilee? The disciples. And who else? Peter. Huh. Weren't those the ones that ran away? Weren't those the ones that said the mission's over? No. Yeah. Jesus is saying, your three-day vacation is over. Get back to work. Let's go. The mission is not over. I'm not done. The mission's not done. Let's get back to work. Jesus has not left them. 
Jesus has not abandoned them. He's not asking people like us to build his kingdom in our power. He's not asking us to to give all we can, and he's going to rely solely on us to get things done. He says, come and I am waiting for you. Come to Galilee where you can continue to do ministry with me. I can't believe that Jesus would just welcome them back, and yet he does. That's what forgiveness is. That's what his death accomplished, and that's what the mission is. That's what his resurrection shows us. So the ending makes sense to me. And adding 9 through 20 seems pretty amazing. But I think Mark ends his story right there. Because it's a question. And it's a question for the women. It's a question for the disciples. It's a question for all disciples from now until Jesus returns. What will you do with your life in response to the resurrection of Jesus? If He is alive, the mission is alive. Of course the women were afraid. Back in those days, nobody, nobody believed women as viable testimonies. But, as my friends at the Crosstalk podcast pointed out, they were the ones who witnessed his death. There were no better people to witness that he was now alive. And they were no better ones to be the first to say he was not in the tomb. He is clearly risen. He is in Galilee. Let's go get ready to get back to work. Did the women end up sharing the message? How do we know? Because of the churches here. The mission never stopped. Even though they were afraid then, they ultimately believed and they went and told Peter. We know from other gospels that Peter ran and checked the tomb out for himself. Others went with him. No one was there. And as we said, it's the familiar Easter story where Jesus just appears to the people uh, headed to Emmaus thinking it was over. Nope, it's not over. Let's get back to work. He shows up with the disciples who are thinking we're scared for our lives. And he says, nope, let's get back to work. And he sends them out on this mission and they turn the world around. And by the way, who is Mark writing to? I'm not sure we ever talked about that. Who is Mark writing this gospel to? He's writing to Christians and people in the city of Rome. You know Rome, most powerful nation on earth. He's writing to them. My my friends at the Crosstalk podcast said, could you imagine being an enemy of Jesus and finding out that the one that you crucified and put in a hole in a rock got out and is continuing to build this other kingdom? How do you stop someone who won't die? Who do you think was really afraid? The Christians or the Romans? 
I think Mark is sending them a message. My friends at uh, the podcast said, they better be afraid. And the question for us, knowing that the might of Rome would not stand against this kingdom, history has shown that, that in just 300 years, Rome became a Christian nation. Because people believed that the leader wasn't dead. People knew the leader wasn't dead. And more importantly, they lived like the leader wasn't dead. Because if Jesus is alive, then the mission is alive. And they got to work on the mission. The kingdom of Christ's church grew and grew. And that should cause anyone fear who will try to build any other kingdom except the kingdom of God. That little mustard seed will take over the whole garden. That church will take over the whole earth. And to those who dare to join Christ's church, for those who dare to join Christ in the mission of His church, who serve His church, who serve as the church, they know two things. They know that the church is only going to get bigger and one day the king is going to return and that kingdom that he promised will be fully realized in our midst. And you can take that to the bank because he is not dead. He is not gone. He is alive. And until that day, you can be absolutely confident to complete the calling that God has given you to do. To build his kingdom in his strength and he promises to be with you as Matthew would write to the very end of the age he is with you he is going forward with you in your calling you are never alone as you build his kingdom his church is with you he is with you there is only one logical response for every Christian who calls Jesus Christ Savior and Lord. And that is, let's get to work. Let me pray for you. Father, death did not stop your mission. You are alive, you are well, and you are with us. May your resurrection be the catalyst for the way that we live. Would you help us to refuse to fight against with every fiber of our being to be building any other kingdom except yours? You have given each and every one of us a calling. May you affirm that calling through your word, through your spirit, through your church, and may all of us, God, as your people, Surrender again to the mission that you have. Regardless of whether we failed that mission before. You are alive. Your mission is alive. Would you help us as your people in this place. In this local body. To get to work. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.